Hey there. We at Blue Wire wanted to thank you for your continued support of this podcast. With over 90 podcasts across our network, we are committed to bringing you great content to fill that sport-shaped hole in your heart. To find more Blue Wire pods, search for us on iTunes or check out bluewirepods.com. And remember, one day sports will return and it will be glorious. Thanks for listening. On to the show. Blue Wire. The Denver Nuggets select Michael Porter Jr. But I'm going to make sure that this pick is this organization's best pick they've ever made. Morris inside. Jokic, 23. Hello and welcome in to a new edition of the Rocky Mountain Hoops Podcast, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I am your host, TJ McBride from MileHighSports.com, your home for all Colorado sports, and this is going to be a very, very fun podcast. I was brought on by the NBA pod guys, Brian Toporek and Morton Stig Jensen, and we discussed the best ways to rebuild an NBA franchise using the Denver Nuggets as not really a, um, a map, but just a guide, looking at what they were able to do. Um, in contrast to the Philadelphia 76ers and other teams who have also rebuilt around the same time, just to kind of try to provide some insight into what works best for teams to be able to rebuild. And I think what made this so interesting is that Morton is actually a Bulls fan. Obviously, Nuggets, um, you know, former general manager Arturis Karnaschovas is now the executive vice president of basketball operations in Chicago, which made the conversation that much more dynamic and that much more interesting. So, Again, go subscribe to the NBA pod wherever you listen to podcasts. Those guys are great at what they do. Go find Brian Toporek on Twitter. Go find Morton Stig Jensen on Twitter. Those dudes do great, great, great work. You will see them tagged in the article that this podcast is posted in. Um, You will see it all over Twitter. I will have them tagged in the tweet that puts this out as well. Um, Also, this is... This is a show presented by Bet Online. So make sure you go to betonline.ag for anything you're looking to bet on right now during this pandemic. I will have more words on them coming up. But again, I got to give one last bit of love to Brian Toporek and Morton Stig Jensen for taking time out of their day to bring me on to have this conversation and allow me to share it with all of you as Nuggets fans on my podcast to allow this dynamic conversation to kind of live in different areas. So we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to give you a quick word from Bet Online. And then we're going to get into the conversation that I had with Morton Stig Jensen and, Bar- and Brian Toporek of the NBA pod. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you would be wrong. Our exclusive partners at Bet Online still have hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Las Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden 20 simulations that you can bet on. You can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating 
contest. All of this is open 24 hours a day and all of it is online. Use promo code BLUEWIRE today and receive your new welcome bonus. Bet online, your online wagering solution. Welcome, everyone, to episode 322 of the NBA Podcast. I'm Brian Toporek, and today we have a very special episode uh, generated from a uh, listener, actually, uh, who proposed the idea of walking through some recent rebuilds, and we're going to try to figure out if there is, quote-unquote, a right way to rebuild in the NBA. Before we get into that, a reminder that you can follow us on Twitter, at the NBA Pod. In our bio, you can find our Twitter handles, so give us a follow as well. You can also find us on iTunes and wherever else podcasts are found. On iTunes, please subscribe, download, leave some five-star reviews. And we are being hosted on Spreaker, so check them out on Twitter at Spreaker. Joining me today, as always, is my co-host Morton Jensen, who also believes that Luka Doncic has already reached his peak. Mort, how's it going? I, I absolutely refuse to answer your question. <laughs> I am so pissed. I am so frustrated. Uh, as soon as I saw that quote, I went to Forbes and I wrote an angry piece. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. I was upset. That that was not cool. <laughs> Here's the thing, right? This bothers me tremendously. So so the kid comes over from Real Madrid. He's won the European Championship, not not for Real Madrid, but for Slovenia. But he's also won the Euro League title. He's won multiple league titles in Spain. He comes over and you have some people basically saying, well, he should go 12th. I don't know that Rashad Phillips dude oh, yeah, calls yeah. himself Yoda or whatever. I don't know. But like, oh, he should be a second round pick. Like, okay, first and foremost, that was dumb. He was always going to be a star. So drafted number one. Then he wins rookie of the year and people go, well, I don't really know how, how much better he's going to be. All right, next year, this year, he goes out and almost averages a 30-point triple-double. And then you have the doubters once again, like, you know what, maybe he's not going to... Shut up. Just, like, you're all just going to look so dumb. And here's the thing, right? If this came from an Eastern Conference executive, now I kind of get why the East always suck. <laughs> if that's I, the way they look at talent, then I get why the East suck. Like, I just hey, we're not going to take him. which executive, like, which team it was. I don't even care which executive, but which team was it and did it rhyme with the schmidt Lana Hawks? I feel like it, it had <laughs> yeah, to. Thank you. It had, it had yeah. to be, you know. That was the first one, right? Yeah. Or, like, I'm terrified, though, because, like, what if it's the Sixers? Like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, that, that, could, that could be a thing. But I you know, know what? It's, it is what it is. So let me just, before we introduce our guest well, you know what? Let, let's do that right away. TJ, how are you? TJ McBride, um, you, come on, man. It's It's I'm been so a while. Livid, it's, Mort. <laughs> I can't even yeah. have this conversation. I spent I 18 months of my life having this exact argument on Twitter up until he was finally yeah. drafted. And then he proceeds to just literally become an MVP candidate overnight after playing in the second toughest league in the world as a teenager and just 
handled everything. And now everyone wants to continually talk crap because Eastern Europeans do not look like the perfect NBA player that you would build in a laboratory. So there's just no way that they're going to be able to do anything despite the fact that the guy without athleticism dunked on the Nuggets and almost beat them with that dunk with seconds left in the fourth quarter despite the fact that his non-shooting and all of his pull-up shots all fell this year and despite the fact that his playmaking is one of the elite levels in basketball already. So I... It's it's infuriating. I can't have this conversation because I get angry immediately, and here I am yelling within 30 seconds of this podcast. That, that's perfect. Let me ask you something. Are you an American? Yes, I am an American. All right. So I'm, a, I'm a European, obviously. So here's the thing. When, when I said the same things that you did on Twitter, people were calling me out saying I was biased for obvious reasons, i.e. that I'm European, so I had some sort of stake in this. I'm just glad to get this out of the way that you, an American, can also share this sentiment because... That whole sentiment, you know, the other one about Luca having peaked or somehow not getting better. You know, we, we, we've stopped swearing on this podcast. So we can just bleep the next 30 seconds out of it. But <laughs> it's, it's really dumb. It's really dumb is kind of my point. And I'm, I'm, I'm livid. I'm still livid. That was going to be my point. It's not sentiment. It's complete and utter ignorance. And people who refuse <laughs> to look at it, what in, it completely in front of their face and obvious and easy. That was one of the single easiest projections from a scouting point of view that has existed right. in the last decade plus. Full stop. Here's the thing, right? Because of what he did in Europe, even even though he was such a young age, and what he's done internationally, you could argue that if somehow, and knock on wood, this never happens, but if if like his right leg fell off and his basketball days were over, you could make the argument that he's in Hall of Famer. I mean, internationally, there is there is an argument yeah, yeah, there, yeah, yeah. and that thing people yeah. miss. They hear Hall of Fame, they're like, "But he didn't play in the NBA for more." It's not about that. Like, there's a reason no, exactly. Carmelo Anthony is a bona fide first team Hall of Famer, and it's because all the gold medals in the Olympics that he had. That is his best resume builder for being able to right. get into the Olympics. He's an incredible all time great scorer at the position at the position that he played in the time that he played. But it's the gold medals that put him into that Hall of Fame contention without yeah, exactly. any question whatsoever. So I I actually that's a it's a fascinating question and i'm slightly leaning to agreeing with you yeah as you should <laughs> just as you should have called me the winner in the last visit you had i don't call anybody the winner except for brian <laughs> apparently yeah mm -hmm. well tj i'm just shocked to hear you defend a fat white european this is very unlike you You're yeah i've never experience. gotten used to this it's not like this isn't something that happens too often on twitter for me right well Thank you again for joining us. Before we get into this rebuild idea, uh, please let our listeners know where they can find you on Twitter and where they can find your work. Yes, at TJ McBride NBA on Twitter, where I usually tweet far too often, but recently it's just been Star Wars and hip hop that I'm tweeting about. Um, but past that, go subscribe to the Rocky Mountain Hoops podcast wherever you listen to listen to podcasts, and go to MileHighSports.com and read whatever you want about Colorado sports. There you go. Yeah, please give TJ a follow. Always great. Uh, great work the whole year round and if and when basketball comes back allegedly it will at some point uh, the Nuggets are going to be very relevant um, mm -hmm. so we wanted to get into this because a user on Twitter Jordan Scott has handled Jordan Dan 53 hit us up a couple weeks ago and kind of suggested comparing and contrasting the Nuggets and the 76ers rebuilds that they've done in the past couple of years and then that got me thinking like well we'll, we'll do that today for sure but I want to like expand it because, you know, teams are rebuilding all the time. And I'm wondering if there are certain things that all rebuilding teams either should or shouldn't do. So we're going to deep dive into the Nuggets and the Sixers just because they are so contrasting in the past couple of years. And then we'll hit 
a couple other teams that have either been rebuilding willfully or have just kind of been stuck in purgatory for a long time <laughs> and figure out what has and hasn't worked and like what these teams should be doing moving forward. So TJ, since you're the guest, we will we'll start with the Nuggets. Um, you know, obviously, I think if we're looking for lessons to replicate moving forward for other teams, find an MVP candidate with the 41st overall pick <laughs> is not not one that we could easily replicate. But what, you know, so they got Jokic, of course, at 41 mm-hmm. in 2014, uh, and that has propelled them in large part to the heights where they are. He's, you know, a legit MVP candidate, the best player on the team, but that isn't the only reason the Nuggets have gotten good. So what what about their rebuild over the last couple of years has worked in your eyes? It's going to sound crazy, but I'm going to go all the way back to 2013, seven years okay. ago. This was essentially the start of what is this current Nuggets front office. Of course, now Arturis Karnaschovas is over in Chicago, so that's a little bit different, but that's where this current iteration of the Nuggets franchise begins. And at that point, the Nuggets had struck out with free agents, have not had enough top-end talent to get past the first round of the playoffs, had lost Melo to a you know, premier big market city, and they felt stuck. They knew they no longer knew how to be able to traverse this NBA world to give themselves the best shot, not at just making the playoffs and going far, but actually winning a title, which has seemed so far-fetched for everybody who's ever been a Nuggets fan. So what they did is they tore it all down. We're going to start at the most core basic level of how you rebuild a team, and that's the draft. Tim Connolly was not a high-level executive. He was not a common household name. He was not somebody who had done 19 different things throughout the league with four different teams and had a stint in the league office. He was a scout. Full stop. That is what he did. He was a director of player personnel in New Orleans who was never in New Orleans because he was always gone scouting. Even now in Denver, he'll just disappear for two weeks because he's just out scouting. It's who he is to his core. So the Nuggets decided, we're going to completely restart this. We're going to rebuild our entire organization from the top all the way down to the 17th man on the roster. And they did that. So they drafted not just for top tier talent, but they focused on the second round. They looked for helpful role players in the middle of the first round. They only had a top seven pick twice in that entire process of being able to rebuild the team. And it all goes back to the fact that they prioritized scouting, which is something the Bulls are doing under Arturis as well. They prioritized the type of players they wanted to build a culture, which are high IQ guys, no drama guys. You're not going to have all of these different you know, p- potentials for whether it's suspensions due to drug charges or whatever domestic violence happens to other players over there, they were not going to have it. They were full, they put a line in the sand and they said, if you can't meet this moral requirement of how we're going to run our culture and our organization, you don't fit. So they started moving. They started completely rebuilding. Gary Harris is the longest tenured player on the Denver Nuggets roster. They completely tore it to pieces. And it started with scouting and it started with the basis of what they wanted their culture to be. And the second most important thing was hiring Michael Malone, a head coach who could actually build that foundation of a culture. Because the front office can only put schemes and ideas and philosophies into place. You need somebody who can completely tear up the ground and reset it themselves. And Michael Malone was the perfect coach for that. So when I look 
at what the Nuggets were able to do and what other teams didn't do during their rebuild. They didn't just rebuild their roster. They rebuilt their coaching staff. They rebuilt their front office. And they rebuilt the way that ownership interacts with the front office, with the coaching staff, for what they now call their alignment top to bottom, which is really what they hang their hat on as an organization. Everybody works together. None of that existed. They had to destroy it all. And that's the credit that I give them for being able to architect what is arguably the most successful rebuild in the past 10, 20 years of basketball. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you look at their draft history, even dating back to 2014, mm-hmm. they had the 11 pick. They picked Doug McDermott, flipped that to Chicago, get Gary Harris and Yusuf Nurkic. They get Jokic in 41. So 2014 sets the foundation for this thing. They don't hit on every pick, and they don't hit on every draft night move, which we can get into. because we'll like, get into number- yeah, 2015, they get Moutier at seven, which, you know, he was high on the boards, but didn't work out for them. But then 2016, Jamal Murray at seven, Juan Hernan Gomez at 15, Malik Beasley at 19. All of those guys panned out. 2017 was the one big misstep where they had the Donovan Mitchell pick traded it to Utah, but they still find Monte Morris in the second round at number 51. So the, you know, 2017 draft isn't a total disaster for them. And then 2018, they take the home run swing on Michael Porter Jr. at 14. We, you know, he misses his whole rookie season with the back injury. It's a high risk, high reward pick, but the talent is there. You see it in flashes this year. So, you know, Denver has an extremely promising young core because, as you said, they've they've done well to build through the draft. Hit hit more than they've missed. I think it's fair to say, despite you know the Mitchell thing hurts, but it wasn't a total organization deal breaker because they have Mm -hmm. so many other Jokic and Murray and all these other guys they hit on so I mean I think that's definitely you know for all of the teams that are rebuilding or starting to rebuild like valuing the draft should absolutely be the first step right I mean like you're not going to bring in talent unless there is talent on your team already you're not going to sign a marquee free agent if you don't have promising young guys, like what made the Nets attractive to Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, Sean Marks built through the draft through a couple of years, despite not really having the resources to do so. He just also hit on a number of picks, Karis LeVert, Jared Allen, you know, landing Spencer Dinwiddie and Joe Harris and all those guys. So yeah, I mean, I think that more than anything, like the Nuggets should be commended for, you know, really like they, they didn't, as you said, they didn't have to tank for high picks. They just nailed the ones more often than not, than that they had. And they didn't ever decide that they were going to just immediately sign whoever they could sign at any free agency point. That is one of the most important parts of this particular discussion is they were able to keep all of that flexibility to sign a guy like Paul Millsap when they needed to because of the contracts of keeping players that you drafted. Plus, we are not talking about the trades. Like when when they went and got Malik Beasley and they got that Rockets first round pick, that goes back to when they traded Ty Lawson to the Rockets and got that first round pick. Oh no, sorry, Aaron Aflalo. They sent Aaron Aflalo to the Rockets. They got a first round pick back and Will Barton in that deal. So again, it's not the big flashy names. It's not ever going to be the Nuggets sign Kevin Durant. It's, wow, they found the ideal role players to fit what they were doing. And also, another part of the scouting thing, which I think is overlooked in a dramatic way, is how many connections the Nuggets had around the world. The way they found Torrey Craig was Pat Connell 
family, who also went with Arturis to Chicago, was currently working in in the NBL in Australia, saw Tory Craig, called his brother, they invited him to Summer League, and here he is, becoming a starter for 11 playoff games last season. Those things, those small decisions, drafting Monte Morris, finding a guy like Vlako Chanchar who can play four positions and costs you $2 million, being able to identify players like that it gives you such a competitive edge in so many different realms. And I think that's a massive part of this. And it's a big reason why the Bulls are making such a big public event of making their scouting department bigger, expanding their international circuits. And I tell this story a lot. Nikola Jokic would have never been in Denver if it wasn't for the fact that Arturis Karnaschovas went to Real Madrid, watched Nikola Jokic have the worst game of his life. Nikola Jokic proceeded to almost choose to sign with Real Madrid and not go into the NBA, and Arturis convinced him not to. Without that, none of this exists. The Nuggets' ascension to the top of the Western... None of it exists in any capacity. The Nuggets had enough people on the ground in so many different corners of the world that they were able to identify talents with the potential to grow into the players that they are. That is something that so few teams take advantage of, and it's something that I think you're going to see a lot more of going down the line. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. Um so I was mentioning this before we started recording, but Morton and I just finished this like top off-season questions for every team. Uh, we just had the Nuggets the last episode, and Mort brought up that I thought was a pretty interesting point about you know the Nuggets have had all of these young guys on their roster, and at a certain point when their rookie ex- contracts run out, you either need to extend them or trade them. They chose the trade route with Beasley and Hernan Gomez at this past year's trade deadline. So where do you think the the nuggets go from here like did they miss their window for that next big upgrade do they even need that or can they just you know hope that michael porter jr like maybe they already have a big three in house it's just you know these guys are all so young that like we need another year or two and then jamal murray and Michael Porter Jr. take that step? It's so hard to say because Malik Beasley's value was so polarizing around the league. It's so clear that when you have a hyper-athletic, five, can play multiple positions on the floor, somebody who can just shoot the lights out of the ball, that's a very enticing kind of a player, but he was so lackadaisical defensively. He was so unaware of what is happening around him on a court that there were so many red flags to go with all of the good sides of it. So when you talk about trading these guys, and if you did it too late and if it closed a win, I first of all find it very difficult to say either way with the current state of the league, but also I don't know if Malik Beasley or Wancho were either good enough to be a part of a bigger deal. I mean, they went out there, they moved guys to an environment that they wanted to be in. They needed to get the addition by subtraction of getting Michael Porter Jr. more minutes. They went and got a player like Keita Bates-Jopp, who was able to fill a lot of different roles on the court. So that deal, I don't know if you're going to get much of a better deal for those kinds of players, even if you go back farther, because again, they are so polarizing. When players like that are so polarizing, you just don't give up the farm for them, even if they are an exciting, enticing prospect. Or prospect. The other side of this, though, of the window closing, I think it's fascinating because teams get stale quickly in the NBA. This Nuggets team has been together for five years. They're still the second youngest roster in all of basketball. The idea of this window being closing right now, it's so hard to wrap my head around it because they're 22, 23, 24 years old. Like The reality is is that they're only 60% of what they can be at their peaks right now. So 
I don't know if the window's closed. I don't know how much longer it's going to be open, again, because of the uncertainty of the league. But I think mm. the idea that this window is closing quickly is something that is completely beyond me. Because, again, like you pointed out, Michael Porter Jr. is waiting in the wings. And when you look at what he was able to do this season, even in minimal, infrequent minutes, he's one of, like, 11 players in NBA history to put up those per 36 as a, as a rookie. Like, you just don't see players that versatile. And then, we haven't even talked about Jamal Murray, who's averaging 25-5 and five as a 23-year-old. Like, that's a pretty wild thing to think about, despite all of the other issues that exist in Jamal Murray's game. So, what if it really is just two years away still? I know I'm sick of saying that, but at what point could they actually be just two years away from being that level of a team? Right. I think, I think it was built on the premise that we were looking at the team. We know that Gary Harris has gone through a lot of lower body mm-hmm. injuries. And obviously, like, that's been more or less two years with him struggling uh, in terms of the yeah. injuries. Yeah, exactly. So there's a question mark about how he'll be able to regain his touch and his rhythm and whether he can stay, stay healthy long enough moving forward. Then at the same time, we look at Jamal Murray, who sort of stagnated this mm-hmm. year. We don't dispute the fact that he's good. Clearly, he is. But I think at this level, considering this was his, uh, if this is fourth year in the league, yes, right? yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I think at this point we were kind of hoping to see maybe a little bit more consistent long uh, long range shooting because you know his mechanics are just so damn. It's per- solid they're perfect. You, yeah, so it's it's just weird that he's like hovering around like the thirty five percentage area, and I think for our part we were sitting there going. Well, those those guys are being locked up financially now with Jokic and all that. At some point, that that roster, from a financial perspective, is going to be somewhat. No, set. we're there. It's we're a hundred percent there because this is the thing. Jamal Murray has signed a maximum contract extension last summer that kicks in this summer. Jeremy Grant's right. nine million dollar player options up, and he's going to want like seventeen million probably. Paul Millsap is going to be a, an unrestricted free agent this season, and you're going to want to keep him. Nikola Jokic is already on a max. You're already paying right. twenty million to Gary Harris, eighteen million to Will Barton. They're maxed out. Like you're talking about them being up. At above the cap with nine dudes right now, yeah. so they're already. And that's the window it. we're talking about. Yes. that's why we, yeah. we we talk about like window, not in terms of the window won't stay open for the competitiveness, because obviously, like you alluded to, the 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 ages of these players they are so young that of course there's going to be internal improvement. The window is more or less, you know, the line of thought. Then can you get someone from the outside that you can add to this group that may be you know, that crucial piece that, that brings them over the top. For sure. And you have Bradley Beal and Drew Holiday, as mentioned in that ilk, right, for sure. Exactly. Um, but what I wonder is, are the Nuggets ownership group going to be willing to spend into the tax enough to do this? They moved Wilson Chandler to the 76ers with the pure intention of avoiding the luxury tax that season. And they could have used him, despite the fact that there were internal struggles between Wilson and the organization, and the season didn't go the way that they wanted, and a whole lot of other things. But they sold Gallo and Wilson away, full stop. And they did not need to do that. And when you look at this Nuggets team right now, could you imagine Gallinari at the three? Like, could you just like think about how good that team could be in that circumstance? But again, they sold those guys away. And that's something that will close your window quicker than any injury, quicker than any age, quicker than injury, any yep. financial situation. If you're not willing to spend, you're not going to get there. And all of these players, by the way, they, Nuggets have bird rights on all of them. They could keep everyone if they wanted to i have no faith they will but they could keep this window open for a long time i just have very little faith that they do yeah so when i'm thinking of takeaways here for 
to apply to other teams. I think the tax issue is a huge one for any yeah. team. Like if your ownership is willing to pay the tax, that's going to be such a competitive advantage when you have guys like Tillman Fertitta around who like every mm-hmm. year, you know, have a team that could have won a title in the last three years. And every year it's, Oh, the trade deadlines here. We magically got under the tax. What a total coincidence. So it's yep. like, okay, guy, like, like you're $101,000 under the tax and a $180 million salary cap. Like, that seems right. to be on purpose. <laughs> right, right. Sure, it's a coincidence every single time. And I'm sure the depth of your roster was not an issue at any point in the playoffs. <laughs> but, you know, so, like, I, I look at the Clippers, right, where Steve Ballmer is just so filthy rich that I think he's going to be willing to pay wildly into the tax, and that's going to give the Clippers such an advantage. Like, if they're willing to spend $20 million this summer to retain Montrezl Harrell and just say, we don't care, like, yeah. that's a gigantic advantage. So that, for any team, not even rebuilding, but championship contenders as well, if your ownership is willing to pay well into the tax because it goes up very quickly, once you get, like, 15 $20 million over, it starts to be extremely punitive. Um, that's going to be a huge deal. And then, yeah, I mean, I think the, the idea of window is not from the competitive standpoint but more as you were saying from the financial perspective of you know these guys are on rookie contracts for four years you can re-sign them if they're good enough you're going to sign them to a max or a near max contract once you get two or three of those on the books it becomes a lot harder you're you know you like at the very start of a rebuild if you look at like where memphis is right now memphis is sitting pretty because you've got Jaron Jackson Jr. on a rookie deal, John Moran on a rookie deal, Brandon Clark on a rookie deal. But once those start coming up and once you start having Jaron Jackson Jr. on a 30-plus million dollar deal, John Moran on a max deal, all of a sudden that flexibility is gone and you're kind of locked into, not necessarily locked into, I mean, you can trade some of these guys, but like you don't have the, oh, we could add this superstar, this superstar, and, you know, sign whoever, trade whoever. It just becomes a lot more difficult to make Big changes. And I'm so curious what happened with Jamal Murray now. Because I agree yeah. with Mort. The three-point shooting not being there like it should is massively concerning for me. If the three-point shooting does not get there, and he's still turnover prone, and he still struggles just getting the ball into the post, what does that contract look like in 18 months? Does he start getting the Andrew Wiggins treatment of, yeah, he's talented, but hell no, I'm not touching that contract. <laughs> like, we're getting towards that point. And again, Jamal Murray is probably a more impactful player than Andrew Wiggins is right now. I'm not trying to, like, yeah. compare the two players. But the way that the contract is going to create this perspective of each of them, if Jamal Murray becomes untradeable and not worth that max, the Nuggets might be screwed. Like, it's that simple, and it seems so trivial to kind of, like, bring it down to something that simplistic, but it's it's very true. You can't bring back Jeremy Grant all of a sudden. You can't have Paul Millsap on the bench. You can't get a Tory Craig to fill out your bench. You can't all of a sudden give Michael Porter Jr. the contract that he may want if you keep Jamal Murray around once you get to that point. Like, these questions become very concerning because you're not getting enough from him, and I'm very concerned about that. And going back to your previous point about owners being willing to spend the Rockets are my favorite example because when Leslie Alexander owned that team he just outright bought like 17 players to trade to get Chris Paul on that team they proceeded to go to game seven against the Warriors and almost beat one of the greatest dynasties ever because he was willing to spend he gave up 
probably what 12 million dollars from just useless unguaranteed salary to be able to build that trade just to have that you know that opportunity to compete and then when they were at that high evaluation he sold and walked and yeah. was like good luck this is i'm now out <laughs> i did everything i could and i'm now out but that's the advantage look at the rockets now compared to when they were actually competing with the warriors that is the easiest example for me to show yeah totally all right, so we can determine one thing then. Having an ownership group that is willing to spend is a crucial element yes. in the rebuilding process. I agree with that, obviously. But I think you know these examples just are a pretty nice way to, to set everything up because you need to have the long-term view. When you as an organization start, you know, when you make that decision, we got to start over. We, we got to clean house. We got to get guys in. You can't just look at at the draft and think one year ahead you need to think long term you need to have a plan in place you have to understand you know what in four years even if we hit home let's say we have three first round draft picks in a single year theoretically even if we hit on all three in four years those three guys are going to be up and that could be 90 million dollars right there so we have to factor in you know the, the the salary structure we have to figure in you know, if we have enough money, if we deem it that we have enough money to go out and be free agency players at some point during this process before we lock those guys up, it, it's an. It, I think it's an interesting dynamic that it, that every team has to think about. Um, but yeah, so let's let's cross that off our list. One thing to be a not guaranteed a good rebuild, but certainly something that would help your odds is having an ownership group that's willing to spend. Yeah, for and- sure. The long-term planning, Mort, I think is a good way to transition into the Sixers because that's yes. what made Sam Hinkie so appealing. You know, you fast forward or rewind back to 2013-2014, the Sixers had just gone all in on Andrew Bynum. That went bust. They had just given up so much. Drew Holiday, That Mo was Harkless. only seven years ago. I know. It's, <laughs> I swear to God. I'm Andrew Bynum like, feels like 15 years ago. Yeah, sorry, we're all I didn't aging in years. No, no, no. <laughs> like, let, I, let me make it even worse. So Sam Hinkie has been away from the Sixers longer than he actually was employed. Yeah. Wait, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. he was God. only there for three years. Jeez, and he's been gone for four. Yeah, I don't need that's that's insane to me. But sorry, yeah. continue your point. I did not mean to distract all of us. No, 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 you're good. You're good. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, so you know, the Sixers had given up so much. Got nothing in return it was a gamble they had you know they just decided to go all in and say if this busts then we're bringing in the guy to tear it all down and sam hinkey comes in and says this is going to be painful it's going to take a couple years that's great everyone gets on board because he's at least communicating you know he decides to build through the draft but unlike the nuggets he's like man we got nothing in the cupboard like we yeah we we just traded everything so we have to get rid of we're going to Trade Drew Holiday, and we're going to pick up New Orleans, and we got another pick that they used. They ended up flipping to get Dario Saric. We're going to just build through the draft, but we're going to we're going to tank. We're going to shamelessly tank for a couple of years because the easiest way to find a superstar is at the top of the draft. And ultimately, they end up getting Joel Embiid at number three because he falls because of the back injury that happens gets discovered right before, or it was the foot injury that gets discovered right yeah. before the draft. Um, they get they win the lottery two years later and get Ben Simmons. So, you know, in the most base way, if you're saying all Sam Hickey did was tank for superstars, he got two of them. So <laughs> that that was success success. He did not hit on every pick. The Netherlands one, 
you know, New Orleans is a good player, but that, you know, the whole 2013 draft is... Yeah, Jahil Okafor coming up next, and the same no. Elk. Yeah, I know. Dude, I've, I've yeah. never been so cons- <laughs> I've never been so sure that someone was just not going to fit in the NBA that was a top 10 pick. I was, yeah. I've never been more sure than that. Yeah, and, and we had your own White, Weitzman on, uh, who the author of Tanking at the Top, the recent book on the Process Sixers, and he answered my, my long-standing question was like, did... Josh Harris have a gun in Sam Hinkie's mouth during that draft. <laughs> and was he saying, if you submit anyone's name other than Jaleel Okafor, I'm going to shoot you. Because it, it was just such an, such an anti hinky pick at the time. But yes. no, I mean, your own said, like, look, based on my reporting, uh, Sam was just kind of going, like, quote unquote, best player available. Chris Stops was giving them the runaround leading up to the draft. And he thought, like, well, maybe, you know, at least Jaleel will, will be able to trade him. But he didn't see you know, the the evolution of the league that the Warriors were bringing at the time where guys like Jaleel would quickly become yeah. irrelevant. So they, you know, they did not hit on every pick, but they got their stars through the draft. I think another thing that worked is, and I think what separated them from some other ongoing rebuilds, Orlando, I think, is the one that people draw the most contrast between. They didn't dick around with, like, we're going to sign Ben Gordon to a four-year, $32 million deal. Like, we don't, we're not going to waste a roster spot on a veteran who's going to help us a little bit in the short term and have no bearing on our long-term outcome. They were like, we're just going to get a ton of salary dumps so we can get more picks. We're going to take a a bunch of flyers on these 10-day guys and undrafted free agents, and if a couple of them hit, they're worth their weight in gold. And they got Robert Covington and TJ McConnell, both of whom turned into legitimate rotation players, and Robert Covington, who they ended up flipping as the centerpiece of a Jimmy Butler trade a couple years later. Yeah. So I think those are all things that worked from the Sixers' perspective. But TJ, I'm curious, as an outsider, like what did you see you know, while watching the Sixers rebuild, and especially comparing it to the Nuggets, like what did and didn't work for you? What's most interesting to me is just the decisions that were made and then just proceeded to not actually work out. Whether it was the Nuggets trying to trade their young players, even though they kept preaching, do not skip steps. We're going to build our young core in the in-house. Despite that, mm-hmm. they wanted Kevin Love during the Paul George and LeBron team-up times during that draft. They made a big play to get Jimmy Butler but instead of instead of him going to Philly, I believe is what it was actually. Um, they also poked around quite a bit on Zach Levine a couple times throughout the process of you know the past five years I believe it's like two or three times in different seasons that they've poked around for Zach Levine so there were moments in which all of this becomes the same situation that Philly was in which I find absolutely fascinating because it literally comes down to one or two decisions so when I look Mm -hmm. back at the Philly side trading Wilson Chandler Mike Muscala and Landry Shamit for Tobias Harris um, Boban and Mike Scott that's the deal that was when they decided that we are transitioning from rebuilding to using all of the assets that we have to try and make a big play that singular decision shifted their entire path towards contention and once they did that they were stuck and that was you know the elton brand started all of this and when that happened you realize that everything that you had worked for what seven years six years to get to that point it had all been balled up and tossed in the garbage can while saying kobe like it was over (laughs) and there was nothing else you were gonna do at that point and that's that's the one trade the nuggets did not make a trade like that and that Mm -hmm. i think is the only differentiation that you can make because like again 
they traded Jeremy Grant for a first-round pick in Arison Ilyasova. When I think about a perfect power forward to put next to Joel Embiid, Jeremy Grant's the guy, but retrospect is 2020. A first in Urson, who again is the kind of player you want to fit with them, it makes sense. And the Nuggets have similar trades like that as well. Um, I don't have any issue with the Butler trade. You always trade mm-hmm. for a super, super, superstar whenever you can. That makes sense to me. Um, but trading Fultz at the time felt very bizarre. I get that they had ruined the circumstance and it wasn't really redeemable at that point, but the fact that the organizational structure allowed it to get to that point is more concerning than the actual outcome that led to it. Um, So for me, going back to my very, very, very first point on this show, the Nuggets didn't just rebuild their roster. They rebuilt how ownership works with the new front office, with the new coaching staff that has been built out and by the people who were going to be leading their respective departments. They placed trust in individuals and allowed them to do that. I do not believe the Colangelos <laughs> have very much trust in anybody who is not named Colangelo. And I honestly think that's the biggest difference. There is not, yeah. there may be an, a lot of cooks in the kitchen for Denver per se, because it was Calvin Booth, Arturis, Tim Connolly, Michael Malone, Josh Kroenke, all in the room making these decisions, but they made them together and they worked through it. And there was an actual thought process behind it. It wasn't, let's see what Elton Brand can do. Oh, you want to trade for a star? Good luck. We'll see how that works out. <laughs> like, like That doesn't exist within Denver. There is a true community of people who are making decisions together with only the best interest of the team and mind and I think that is really the biggest difference and in why a trade like that didn't happen in Denver compared to it happening in Philly yeah yeah I mean I think you know we were going talking earlier about like ownership's willingness to spend and that is unquestionably a huge asset in a real build rebuilding process but you know as I alluded to with Mort's long-term plan earlier Hinky was appealing because he had a long-term plan and then the Sixers owners kneecapped him yep. about six months before that plan really started to come to fruition. And now the, we've had three regime changes, effectively. Hinky to the Colangelos and now to Brand, where the continuity of, you know, I, I, when when Sam came into power, Julius Irving gave an interview, I think in like 2014, he's like, this is a five to seven year thing. By the end of it, we're going to be back in a contention. And if you look, it was like mm-hmm. by year five to seven, they were right back, you know, in the second round of the playoffs every year, winning 50 plus games. Like it went according to timeline. There were some hiccups in there, of course. There always will be. Uh, you're right. The course, Nuggets traded but... Eric Green for Rudy Gobert on draft night. Like there's always <laughs> going to be these things. Right. You're not going to hit every single move, but I think the lack of continuity in the Sixers front office is ultimately what set them down the path that they went on where it's, okay, we just feel this constant pressure, which is weird because the fans were on board. Like, they were <laughs> That's strangely the on board. Part. It drives me crazy that they panicked for no reason, yeah. for no public outcry. There was no PR disaster, none of it. They just folded. Right. I don't get that. Right. It's like having a 16 in, in blackjack and being like, I don't know whether to hit or stay. So you know what? <laughs> Screw it. I'm folding. I'm out. I don't, I don't know what to do. And it doesn't, right. it just doesn't make sense to me. And I also think I, 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 there was a piece on the rights to Ricky Sanchez that was written by Sixers Adam way back in the day where he kind of just roasted the organization. He was like, listen, yeah. there are some very real issues and it needs to be understood how this works. The egos that are involved in Philadelphia compared to the complete lack of egos that exist in Denver 
is a also a massive part of this. Someone wants their name to be the reason why things worked in Philly. In Denver, yeah. they could not care less. It's a Queens-bred New Yorker in Michael Malone who just wants to win playing defense. and It's just like deeply ingrained to him. It's Tim Connolly who, if it was his choice, he'd be scouting, not running a damn team. Like If it wasn't for the money boost, I bet you he wants no part in trying to figure out who their hygiene officer is going to be. Like That's not what he wants to do. So like... there's no ego. Arturis Karnasovis is a robot. The dude is stoic. You will never feel like he is coming after you aggressively or is trying to undermine you. None of that exists. There is no mutiny that can potentially exist. There's not this complete lack of understanding of how the people around you operate. There was just that, that alignment. That's the word that the Nuggets continually keep using, and I think it's the important one, because when you don't have an yeah. ego and you're just in line and you're doing the best that you can do, it's going to be so much easier than whatever the hell is going on in Philly right now. Yeah, I think there is, needs to Is be- alignment just another term for synergy, but they just want to get away from the core yes, buzzword? Yes, it's, it's the non-Silicon <laughs> okay. Valley version of synergy, for yeah. sure. Perfect. But it's, okay. it's tr- like you need alignment or synergy or whatever you want to call it from the ownership, because if the ownership's not on board or if they change plats halfway through like the Sixers owners did, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. But from ownership through the coaching staff, through front office, like all the way down to the players, like everyone needs to be aligned on here's what we're doing, here's why we're doing it, yeah. the way we're, that we're doing it. And if you have that, then you have the ingredients for a successful rebuild. But if you don't, or if you change paths in the middle, all of a sudden, it's you know your your coach or your front office is thinking one thing. Or like, I mean, Chicago is a perfect example, right? Where your coach is doing one thing, the front office is possibly thinking another thing, and the ownership is maybe even thinking another thing. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, well, what? What's the actual plan here? Like, what is the long-term vision that we are embracing? Or do we even have a long-term vision? And if you don't, you're going to be stuck in purgatory. And people don't realize... Well, oh, sorry, to, to sorry, be fair, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. To, to be fair, with, with the Sixers, though, like, and you, just, you brought it up, TJ, in terms of like the, the Tobias Harris trade, that that's when everything kind of switched. That's when they went from a rebuild into actually trying to contend. Let's just let's just play that out before that happens, right? Because the Markel Fultz thing, to me, that's where everything started happening. Because if Markel Fultz is his old ass self from Washington, mm-hmm. if he comes in and he doesn't have that busted shoulder and whatever happened, that this whole timeline changed. This this is like a community alternate timeline and and situation ultimately yeah because i don't think they would have gone for tobias harris which would have led to jimmy butler which would have led to all sorts of craziness in terms of the trade market i think those i don't think those moves would have been made i think they would have stayed the course and i think ironically they would have been looked at as very closely like denver in terms of having kept a lot of the young guys moving because again markel falls full steam ahead no injury concern Come on, he would be like a 20, 20 point two score right now. On, on, and like the way he shot the ball at Washington, God, he would be. Game a, was so like, good. He was <laughs> outstanding. Like that three ball. I mean, look, you know, the shoulder is one thing. And I get that he wasn't a good three throw shooter in college as well. And some people were like, well, yeah. is that three point shot legit? Yes, yes, it was. It was absolutely legit. Don't, don't overthink it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's when everything kind of shit changed because now you're out an asset, a major asset, because you lost both trades ultimately yeah. solely yeah. because of that damn shoulder. Now you have to pivot, right? You have to do something because otherwise you're just going to waste and beat. You're going to waste Ben Simmons. And this is when. The, the Sixers just didn't have a backup plan. They they just kind of said, "Uh oh, 
we need to do something, so we're pivoting. And I think, like you guys said, stuff just comes up sometimes. You have to adjust. You have to, you have to pivot. You have to do something else. Like, so my question here is, what should Philly have done instead of pivoting towards being win now? My thing with that is they gave him the worst possible circumstance to grow, and all of these eyes on him at all. Do you remember all the videos that would come out of that practice yeah. facility? They yeah. ruined yeah. his mental confidence. They completely Absolutely. obliterated it. So yes, I agree with you. That is probably the deal that completely shifted the way that they went about things, but it was entirely self self-inflicted and that's the part to me that i don't i don't want to use it as a catalyst because there was no reason for that to exist in that capacity he could have gotten that right. injury and none of this should have existed in that way that is 100 self-inflicted it's something that the 76 should have owned up to instead of letting some poor 19 year old kid get eviscerated by people and they <laughs> never actually did it so the point that it was irredeemable and the trade had to be happening because there was nowhere else to go was because they burnt every bridge around them and were stuck on an island and couldn't go anywhere in my opinion yeah i agree with that yeah yeah absolutely and i think if we're you know going big picture thirty thousand foot view here for other teams as well it speaks to you know you have joel Embiid and ben simmons you have the two superstars that most other teams would kill for right now but your work isn't done there mm -hmm. like it, it, <laughs> getting the superstars is step one building a roster around them is step two and you know that on paper the Fultz trade made sense. Like he is on paper pre-draft, Markel Fultz is the perfect prospect to pair with Simmons and Embiid. It didn't right. pan out for obvious reasons, and yeah, it seemed like the Sixers just did not have more. As you said, they didn't have a backup plan. They they like got so excited by that playoff run, that first playoff run where they win 16 games straight at the end of the season, and they beat Miami in the first round, and they lose to Boston. And it just seems like that accelerated their timeline where they think like oh we're ready to win right now I, it's like no Joel Embiid is 25 and his turnover prone and is out of shape every year and Ben Simmons still won't shoot threes and cramps the spacing of the entire team like these guys weren't ready to be the number one option on the title team yet but they they acted like they were I have a hot take. It's not about finding multiple oh stars in the draft. It's about finding one and building around the one and then finding the right star to pair with them. Just getting yeah, two great. stars is not the way to being able to rebuild your franchise into contention. When you start with two stars like this, you don't know where these gaps are going to be. You don't know how these players are going to develop. You don't know what parts of the game that you're going to have to fix. Even with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid and JJ Redick, one of the most likely out lethal all-time shooters that plays specifically off ball there still wasn't enough spacing Robert Covington yeah. can shoot 40% from three still wasn't enough spacing the Nuggets had the benefit of just getting Nikola building around Nikola learning Nikola what is he like what makes him at his best and then finding ways to fill in after that if you just get two stars I don't think that that does as much for you as it looks like on paper well, it depends on who they are. Like, you can't get lucky. and those But it's luck, two and just... that's kind of my point. Yeah, yeah, that's I, kind I of my point. Well, I agree with that, but at the same time, and I think this needs to be said when we're talking about rebuilding processes, you need luck to oh, rebuild properly yeah, as well. You need, you need a lot of luck. Yeah. I mean, the, the, so, so my personal way of, 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 if I was sitting there interviewing for a GM job and how I would, would rebuild, I would, I would actually have like a three-year window where I, where I could just go all in on the draft, 
where I would want to optimize the amount of draft picks I had at my disposal for a three-year period. But look, I could go 0 for 9 if the if I have nine draft picks. I could I could miss on all of them at some level, and at some point you just need to luck on your side. So mm-hmm. so that's an important ingredient in this as well. So how much is luck? I'm so curious the degree of it because in my right. in my eyes the league has shifted to a hyper more intelligent decision makers in yes, front offices correct. in the past ten years. So yes, luck yeah. was way more important ten years ago than it is right now. I think now you're seeing teams like you know or front office members, whether it's Masai Ujiri, who's been doing this forever as a drafter, Tim Conley, Sam Presti. These are people who yeah. just do their work. And when there are mm-hmm. enough smart individuals in front offices, I think the luck ratio goes down quite a bit, which is why I started out by saying you have to get a guy who knows how to go about the draft and how to find the right types of players in the draft, which is what the Nuggets did bringing in a guy like Tim Connolly, which is also what the Bulls are doing by bringing in Arturis Karnaschovas. So I do wonder yeah. if that luck has been I think your point is incredibly important, and I think it's absolutely fair, and it should be involved in this, but I do wonder if that amount of luck has shifted in the past decade. It has. It has. It absolutely has, because back in the day, when you sit there and you read books from the the 80s and the 90s about, like, the draft selection process, it's... It's like you know. I get I get visions of going back to the Stone Age. You're sitting there with a small rock. <laughs> Jerry Krause's your head doesn't count for how tall you are. Did uh, you yeah. see that? They yeah. don't can, well, they don't yeah. count so, your head inches because it's not usable inches in basketball. Like, right. So now you're barking up the wrong tree because I've made that point with Donovan Mitchell before. Interesting. What he's like five yeah. foot yeah, eight I, without I, a head. Is that your, that's the point? No, no. Basically, when you have a short neck, like if your your shoulder height can be really important. I, I think if you have like you, you remember Martinez uh, Andruskevich's back in the day, yes. the former Bull Center, like seven foot four or something. His neck like made him he seven looked four. like a giraffe. Like he, <laughs> correct, he did. If you took his shoulder height, he would probably be closer to six ten, and he played small. That was a part of it. And then you had Donovan Mitchell, who has this very very small neck, and his shoulder height is probably equal to someone six four instead of someone six one. So I think shoulder height does matter to an extent. Because you know what I carry as the most importance here is that's what's inside one's head, though. I just find it funny that Morton is that, or that Mort is out here right now defending Jerry Krause on a podcast. I'm just like I that, well, I, hey, all I can look, think about is you're saying these things. Look, look, I'll, I'll give Jerry this. He he, he won six rings. Yes, he did, yeah. and he his built, decisions were a team. monstrous part of being able to keep that dynasty going. Exactly. So so that is something. But uh, no, I, I'm just saying that you had the most weirdest stories yeah. you had with you know some guy who saw some kid in a gym and then you called up your buddy, the GM, who you just happened to find somehow and you go, All right, I saw a kid. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool, we'll draft him. What? Like to I totally agree. Today it's like nothing is left up to to just coincidence or or randomness like everything is being just scoured through hey we're considering drafting someone in the late 50s cool ring his third grade teacher so i can (laughs) right everything is everything is like there now so i agree with you with that being said like phil jackson made dennis the jr eat octopus for the first time as part of their interview process so there are still some like (laughs) archaic idiots that exist in the nba world Oh, but, you know, what would the NBA be without that? It's charming. <laughs> it's romantic. Uh, octopus. We need more octopus stories. I'm Come on now. Octopus and soup stories. Give me all of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I, I think ultimately, I agree with you. Like, today, you can make educated decisions 
in a far wider scope than you could just 10 years ago. Um, I think I think it boils down to a combination of what we what we've been talking about for the past 50 minutes. It's like you need the the I, I'm sorry I'm not allowed to say synergy. What was it? Alignment. <laughs> alignment. Yes. All right. So you need the alignment. You need an owner who's willing to spend. Then you need all these you know top professional front office guys who isn't in it to get headlines yeah. as you talked about. There who's in it for the work. Then you need to be you know. You know five percent lucky if outside of what you do in draft preparations you also need to have a long-term plan like mm -hmm. all of these things have to go hand in hand and you cannot skip steps that's the big one any of these yeah. things yeah so let's go into just some of the other teams around the league that have been mired in the either perpetual mediocrity or worse for the last couple of years and figure out you know kind of quick hit oh, i like, know where you're what, going yeah what went wrong here so like the New York Knicks are the punchline <laughs> of the NBA forever, right? Yes. But like, what, what, what are they doing wrong? Like, why can't they figure this thing out? Well, that's easy. Come on, when you have an owner who gives potential free agents his own CD, <laughs> that's that's game. And over if you right make there. every yeah. player who comes through your organization hate you, you're not going to have yeah. a good opportunity to keep people coming to your organization. Like, I don't know how, like, that's like the most simplistic thing about the Knicks. They make right, everybody right. who goes there hate the Knicks somehow. And I'm just like, that's <laughs> as simple as it gets for me. No, yeah. I, I th and I think I know why. I think I know why. I think when James Dolan, he's the type of guy who doesn't really look at players as individuals or as human beings. Assets, he looks at them yeah. as, par pardon? Assets. They're just assets. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and not in the good way, like when we talk about assets, like he looks at them as faceless jocks, mm -hmm. right, in some capacity. So you also need the personal aspect. If mm -hmm. you're an NBA organization who do this the right right way, you need to have a front-facing uh, mentality, even if you're a GM. Like, I, we've all heard this idea beforehand that some GMs are kind of like, we're letting, I, I, don't, I don't talk to my players because, you know, it, it'll be hard if I have to trade them one day. No, yeah. no, don't. Talk to your players. Yes. That builds a relationship. It helps. It makes that player feel, you know, valued. It makes them feel that they have a role moving forward. That is crucial. And, and these relationships and the way that you communicate as an organization from top to bottom, that's, that's just such a huge element. And for the Knicks, they have none of that. Yeah. The internal communication, as we've seen reported multiple times over over the past few years, is non-existent. So that's, to me, is the one part of it. And, and then, of course, the overall incompetence. Just the Nixie-Nicks of the Knicks, yep. Exactly. Just, yeah. I, I, I think, you know, someone like Orlando is a much funner team to bring up because... You know, they, they have legit issues. It's not just one owner who's completely insane. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, let's go into Orlando because, yeah, I mean, they made the playoffs last year. They're 42 and 40, but they've, you know, missed the playoffs in each of the past six seasons. They are, uh, when the season suspended, they were the eighth seed, but they're 30 and 35. Like, they haven't had a, a record above 500 since, or, like, significantly above 500, I should say since Dwight Howard was there. So, you know, they trade Dwight Howard in 2012, and obviously they start a rebuild from there. But why haven't they dug out? I mean, it's been eight years, basically. Like, why are they still stuck in, we are lucky if we are the seven or eight seed? And before TJ answers, because this one goes to TJ, let's let's just remind our listeners of one thing. When the, After that Dwight, Dwight Howard trade, they looked really good. Yeah. Holy. Yeah. We're looking at that. It's like, oh, Orlando is the winner here. They could be the winner. 
because they look really good. They have everything moving for them right now, or just everything at their disposal. So they, they were coming up Millhouse, and yeah, then things went wrong. Too. And they've kind of just continued on that path. Like, it seems like they've made correct decisions that haven't panned out. Jonathan Isaac is a hell of a player, and I don't think people realize that. Mo Bamba is, is always a... That's always going to be a questionable pick in my eyes, but they've made risks, they've taken risks, and they've gone out of their path and they've tried to build a functional team. My thing is that they have never once found a consistency in how they play basketball to build a roster for their scheme. That has never existed. They have four power forwards and they want to play a driving kick game. Or It's always something that doesn't work schematically when I watch them. And you, know, you, you see the drafting of Mobamba. They're going to spread the floor more, which gives Jonathan Isaac more room to play power forward and be a mismatch and all these beautiful things. But there are so many small little issues that just have haven't worked out that haven't allowed us to see what they can do. So I'm actually not out on magic on the magic yet. I think they have done 75% of the job. And I think there's a reality in which some of these players start to click and they start to connect and they find the role players who mesh this team together. Well, to where they can finally start getting more out of it. Yeah. I mean, to me, the magic, it just seems like they've been trying to take the shortcuts. And I think the Mm -hmm. same applies for the Knicks where they just haven't had the patience to say, we're going to suck for a couple of years and then but we're going to like put the things in place that we need so when we have the right players we're going to get good. I think the Magic are also somewhat unlucky at least in yeah. terms of, you know, their one year that they had a top 3 pick. They got Oladipo at 2, which is great, but he didn't really take off until after he <laughs> yes. left the team. And then, you know, they flip Oladipo and Sabonis for a half-season rental of Serge Ibaka. That's brutal. That's, right, like that <sighs> is the original sin of like Here's why you are stuck so far, you know, down in this rebuilding process. Like why you haven't taken steps forward is because, you, like, there is no reason to trade for Serge Ibaka then, or to give Terrence not- Ross that contract that was like three years of seventy-five million or whatever it was. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and like now they just have such a front court logjam mm-hmm. where you know it makes sense. Of course, you don't want to lose Nikola Vucevic for nothing. He's your all-star center, but you have Eric Gordon, Jonathan Isaac, Mo Bamba. You just brought in Al Farouk Aminu this year. You now have Chuma Okeke, too. Like, you have so many guys who play the same two or three positions. Like, Aaron Gordon has played 40% of his minutes this year at the three. It drives me like, mental. He played shooting yeah. guard this year at points. I was like, well, what are we... Oh, God. Okay, <laughs> right. schematically. So like, I mean, if there is a hashtag free Aaron Gordon campaign, you're not... Something's <laughs> gone wrong here. <laughs> so, well, see, you just brought up, like, the, the, the trades and stuff, right? Yeah. It goes deeper than that, because then you have Mario Hisonia, who's yeah. the fifth overall pick in 2015, 15, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you let him, you didn't even pick up his fourth year option. Yeah. And then he went to the Knicks. Essentially, you just wasted a top five draft pick. Yeah. That is huge currency. That's like if you walked in New York and you had like $2,000 in your wallet in cash and you just dropped it. You can look back afterwards, two seconds later, that's gone. You're yeah. never seeing those two grand again. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. With, with, they just waste so many draft picks indirectly because then you had the Alfred, Pay- Alfred Payton trade. You ended up, you know, actually attaching a pick in that trade to, to yeah. get yeah. Uh, Alfred Payton on draft night, yep. and then you ended up trading him for a second rounder. I want to yeah, say to it was Phoenix. a second rounder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, that's just a waste. It's bad asset then, management so, for sure. They've always it, done that. It is like right before when we talked about the Knicks, we we mentioned the word assets, 
And obviously players shouldn't just be viewed as assets, but you have to look at the value in these players and you have to understand in order to improve if there are guys that we don't want to have around we have to trade them at a right point or we have to put them in a situation where we can at least get their trade value up they've just kind of be they've been reacting instead of just being progressive and and acting and doing something like yeah on their own accord they've just been reacting all the time and you don't get anywhere so how how do we judge the risks that play that teams are taking because i think that's an integral part to being able to rebuild are taking these risks that we are talking about and while they will burn you to a crisp they are also the reason that people are hailed as geniuses so at what level are these risks also required of the magic to continue taking them guys like mobamba like that's an important kind of decision because if it does work it changes your entire franchise right See, so the thing with me here is I think even though you, you can theoretically be a game-changing center, I think the center position yeah, has been so devalued lately in, in that you can find someone who might be 60% of what an optimal Mobamba could be yeah. for like 5 to $7 million on the market. Well, yeah, like how much big is Brook Lopez? Like He's like twice the player that Mobamba is, and the actual right. amount of you know uh, commitment that you have to make is so much lesser. Yeah. So so for me, it's all about what's the alternative? Like, what's there that you could have done otherwise? Like, I agree with you. At some point, you need to go for the home run. But what you have to identify what that home run yeah. is. Is it a swat? Is it a shot blocking center? I don't think it is. Yeah. I think it's that ball handling wing at six nine who can get into the paint at will and who can find shooters like at full speed. Yeah. So you also have to be like you have to be good at understanding. What's the, who's the guy that I want to cash in my chips on? Who's that dude? And is Mo Bamba ever going to be that dude? I, I don't think so. Fail to see yeah. that. No, right? And, and so I think, again, it comes down to just an understanding of where the NBA is. Well, and now, you know, more you're bringing up, like, wasting assets and wasting draft picks, and another team that jumps to mind right away is Phoenix. Yeah. Because uh, mm. if you look, I mean, they've done – somewhat well at least in terms of finding value later in drafts but like you know they found tj warren at 14 overall in 2014 five years later they pay a pick to get off of his contract yeah his contract is reasonable and then he turns he's good yeah right like this that is just a complete waste of like what it you should be getting something for TJ Warren. TJ Warren is not a salary dump. TJ Warren so, is right. worth a first round pick to a lot of teams right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So like giving up a number 32 was just a complete waste. I mean, Devin Booker, they nail at number 13 in 2015. Dragon Bender was a miss in 2016. And then they trade, I think it was eight, 13 and 28 to get up to Marquise Chris as well. That was, you know, that bust. like they, they, have had a number of whiffs at the top. Josh Jackson, number four in 2017 as well. So, you know, they have Booker, they have Aiton, but it's, again, it strikes me as like a lack of patience, like trading Zaire Smith and a completely unprotected pick from Miami for Mikael Bridges, who is a great player. Mm -hmm. Like, I would have loved to see him on the Sixers. I think he would have provided a lot of what they're missing right now. But he's the type of player that you add when you're like a 45-win team, and he could be that, like, blue guy missing piece like he's not going to he's not worth giving up a first round pick he's not going to change the trajectory of your franchise so and and this is this is the issue right 
because if you let's just route up the um, uh, the, the T.J. Warren thing. Yeah. Suns fans were arguing that the reason that they traded Warren was to clear up minutes for everyone else. Mm-hmm. That's what every losing team fine. argues. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. right. But here's the problem with that is, you know, if, if, whatever the reason is you trade him, fine. But that, that doesn't mean you have to go on a compromise for his trade value. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you have to get desperate and send him out and basically pay to get him out of town just to clear up minutes. No. You play coy. You tell teams, we really like this guy. He is good. He's averaging 20 points a game. He's starting to shoot threes really well even. He had 43% from downtown. You, for, for you to get him, you need to pay up. Like, you can't call someone and say, well, gosh, we really need to get off of this contract. Well, you don't say. Yeah. That's just killing yourself, right? Yeah. I mean, it, so, for the, so for the Suns specifically, I just want to get ahead of that because you know yeah. we're going to get Suns fans in our comments about this, and I think it's crucial for them to understand it's not about – their their plan of clearing minutes right. it's about understanding what value is. and another part of this like the alignment that we've talked about so much they've had like 17 head coaches how is anybody <laughs> going to develop when you don't even know who you're going to play for every four months so that alone yeah. is just it, it's impossible to have a true player development staff when it changes over and over and over again it's like taking the same class with seven different teachers you're going to get so much of the same information or the terminology is different so you get confused and suddenly you don't know what is right and it leaves you lost yeah. and that's when I look at guys like Marquise Chris, guys like Dragon Bender, guys like even DeAndre Ayton, who just are so clearly without a like knowing where to be on a basketball court. And I think that is 100% because of their lack of consistency with any part of their coaching staff. They have never had that. And now, you know, it, Monty Williams is doing a much better job. And they and you saw, like, real growth with that team this year. Yeah. And they got an actual point guard and Ricky Rubio. And the culture is better. And like, all of those things are really important. They've never had any of those things. And that, I think, yeah. is the crux of the issue with that Phoenix Suns team. And also, they got lucky yeah. with... Let's not pretend that they didn't get lucky with Booker. Like, that, that's not just right. like... They, they got lucky on that pick as well. And Sarver but, is and, miserable, so it doesn't help that you have bad ownership <laughs> on top of all of this. Yeah, but, you know, as Mort said, like, you, you do need to get lucky sometimes. The Milwaukee Bucks are not where they are if Giannis Antetokounmpo does not fall, both fall to 15 and turn into an MVP candidate. Yes. Like, it, it requires... I mean, same with the Raptors and Pascal Siakam. Yep. Like, it, these things, you know, Rudy Gobert Utah and the Jazz. Gobert. Yeah, yeah. So it requires luck if you're going to find I mean hell even the Warriors with Draymond Green. Yep. Like you don't you're yep. not expected to get a defensive player of the year with the number 35 overall pick. You're not expected to get Steph Curry at 7 who's going to turn into the greatest shooter of all time or Klay Thompson at 11 who's going to be the second greatest shooter of all time. <laughs> like it, it it takes luck for sure. I mean if if we're going to like say what is the key to a rebuild, luck is definitely high on that list. For sure. But, Oh, the key to the key to rebuild is also having a cap explosion in twenty sixteen, <laughs> and Steph Curry having, having broken ankles for the first three yes, years exactly. of his career. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I will never that, that that the ability for that Warriors team to exist is just so bizarre. It took so many mm. like planets aligning for that to work out, man. I I hope people remember that. I really hope that they don't like, man. The NBA is the worst in ten years. Like, I really hope yeah. they remember why that happened. <laughs> Well, the worst thing is it just screwed up how every other team had to team build for the next couple of years because it was like, 
oh, well, they have four superstars, so we need four superstars. It's like, no, this was a one-time fluke. This is never yes. happening again. And it's Draymond as the superstar is already so, like, so much a farce in that regard anyway. Right. Like, yeah, sure, a guy who shoots four times a game as a superstar is not exactly the same thing as having four stars on your team. Right. So, I mean, ultimately, we've gone through a number of teams, and I think... You know, it's instructive to look at, like, the, the Knicks and the Magic and the Suns because there are teams like Atlanta and like Memphis now. New Orleans is an outlier, I think, just because, you know, you trade Anthony Davis, you mm-hmm. get so much back yeah. that that's going to kickstart your rebuild. But, like, Atlanta has done a really good job just in two years or so, and the Nets even a couple years, you know, before getting in KD and Kyrie. Like, this thing doesn't have to take... 10 plus years like some teams can do it quickly memphis is on that trajectory too where yeah they got lucky to jump up to number two to get john morant but you know jaron jackson jr falls to them at four and they're like all right we're gonna get the second best player of this draft at number four that's great yeah this worked out and really imagine well how us. good boston would be if they wanted to trade Terry rochier back in the day <laughs> i still can't believe that was a thing they were like no you know what we gotta hold on to terry yeah. rozier uh, <laughs> never get past that terry rozier fantasy I... killer and miserable nba player yeah, yeah, the double whammy, as it were. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm just realizing something, because my former team, the Bulls, hired, well, one of each from your 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 Mark teams. Eversley and Arturis Oh yeah, yep. Yeah. yeah. Although to be fair, I, there are more nuggets over there than there are Philly guys. Pat Connolly at least wins them. <laughs> probably for the best. But yeah. let's let's now that we've talked through all these teams, let's like kind of go through quickly like. What are the big takeaways? What should teams do and what shouldn't teams do when you're starting to rebuild? Other than if you're the Pelicans, trade Anthony Davis for everything and, you know, be be really lucky in that regard. Like if you are starting to get a superstar. So so the two things for me is scout as well as you can. You bring somebody in who can build your team through the draft, and then you find a coach who can incorporate the culture that you want to exist from day one. You need to start from day one, and if you allow different regimes to be involved like Philly has done, where they've taken out pieces and replaced people but haven't actually rebuilt the front office, it'll always have pieces from prior regimes, and you need to start fresh, and you need to give a coach the ability to actually build the culture that you want to exist and vice versa for 100%. example if we use the bulls as an example because they're going to go into a different rebuild i have mm-hmm. to assume then you cannot hang on to jim Boylan, and not for the reasons that are obvious that he's horrible more so because he he was a, a, a pax guy you can't yeah. do that you need a fresh slate i mean karnishovas and everly need to be able to hire someone else and you know fingers crossed it's adrian griffin i think that would be a tremendous hire um Oh, you're, you're laughing. I, I just don't forget the name Chris Finch. I know it's a quiet one. This is not yep. reporting. Yep. This is all speculation. Chris Finch yep. unlocked Nikola Jokic offensively. He's also the one that yep. made Boogie and Anthony Davis work together in New Orleans. Him as an mm. offensive mind is spectacular. He has an existing relationship with Arturis. And when you have Laurie Markin and Wendell Carter in a front court, that's the guy I'm calling. Interesting. See, I've I've noticed that you've been bringing him up on Twitter over the yes. past few years here and there. So, so I'm glad you brought him up because I, 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 to be honest, I forgot. You're you're absolutely right. That's a good name. I think Adrian Griffin just seems to be in yeah. that. You know, he's in that conversation NBA now. Guy. See, yeah. yeah, and he's like he's been working the sidelines, you know, as an assistant for so long. It seems like now is his time, sort yeah. of. 
as well. And then, like, he's in high regard and he's a player's coach, which, hell, this is going to be the first time in a while that the Bulls will have a player's Wes coach. Wes Unsell Jr. is uh, another name when we're talking about players' coaches who could potentially be in the, in the mix for Chicago. Wes Unsell Jr. is the Nuggets' lead assistant coach right now. I have not met somebody right. who is beloved by every single player in the way that he is. From Vlako Chanchar, first time here after being in Real Madrid, and he's, uh, you know, I believe he's Slovenian. And then all the yeah. way up to Will Barton. Inner city, Baltimore, bred and raised, you know, crazy, amazing dude. But there's so few people like that who can do that. So I would definitely keep Wes, Un- Wes Unsell Jr. Yeah. as a name on your mind as well. Right. And, and, and like just basically a new coach. So you can start over with an entirely new regime. And then the question to me is because you brought it up, CJ, regarding like the whole change of like you need to, to have the you need to go about it thoroughly. What about the roster? Like, do do you do you hang on to certain players because you see the mm-hmm. potential there, or do you also say right from the get go, screw it, gone with everyone because there is an established superstar mm. start over. From Absolutely scratch. not yeah. start over from from scratch with the roster. I would be surprised if that. If there's going to be changeover, but to restart, no. He's going to love Wendell Carter because he already does. I've talked I talked about Wendell Carter like yep. randomly with him during the draft. The Nuggets liked Wendell better than Marvin Bagley. They are very very high on Wendell Carter. Laurie Markkinen is the exact kind of power forward, sharpshooter, shot blocker, um, potentially has mobility at some point in his career that fits with Wendell Carter. When I look at that front court, I think Arturis Karnaschovas is very excited about the potential that those two represent. But then, Kobe White, Zach Levine, Chris Dunn, those players, I, I have a much more difficult time trying to quantify for my, for how right. Arturis kind of exists. I think that Kobe White will get his run. He's just too talented. He just genuinely is. Like, that second half of the season, when he wasn't just shooting, like, 75% from three, but creating for everybody, getting downhill, showing off the flashiness, that was when you're like, all right, there is a real potential for a uh, J.R. Smith-esque kind of bench volume microwave score. But... I don't know about Zach Levine Um, because Zach Levine and Jamal Murray carry so many similarities in how they play. There are ways you would like them to play, and there is the way that they actually play. And that is just kind of... And then there's the contract. Yes, and there's the contract. So I do wonder... I'm sure he'll look out there in the market. Arturis is not nervous. Arturis going to call everybody he feels like calling about whatever player he feels like calling about. He has some messiahness to him in that way where he's kind of cutthroat if he needs to be. And you wouldn't know it because he's so stoic and just easily easily approachable. But um, I do think Wendell Laurie will stay. I do wonder... I think Chris Dunn's gone. I don't think it makes sense to have Chris Dunn. You need a better creator at that point guard position. And I also think that you're going to see them really look at what you can get for Zach Levine either around the draft if they want to get in to get a player or around the trade deadline when they start trying to open up more flexibility going forward. Mm. And and this is just to... to on the record, it's, just, it's not just the Bulls we're talking about, but it just makes sense to bring them up because they yeah. had this regime change. Because when we talk about a rebuild, a rebuild can be many things. Like, you can have the same regime start a rebuild on their own terms and just basically just restart the roster, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That counts for a rebuild. But this, this is an organizational rebuild. This is top to bottom. Everything goes to start over, which I think is fascinating because now you can actually see all these things that we're talking about trying to be implemented about, you know, alignment, making yeah. sure that people in this in different departments are on the same page and increased scouting staff. That, like the Bulls that's, are, huge. that's a huge. One. And also the player development yeah. staff. I saw a report today they had one player development coach last year. This is the National Basketball Association. How do you have one yes. player? The Nuggets have six, and they have a small staff. 
So they like yeah. again. You want to talk about rebuilding the Bulls? You got screw trying to figure out all the other stuff. Get a staff together. Like just like, let's at least yeah. like create an ability to actually have something substantial. Because when you have one player development coach and you're not even scouting Europe, you're not going to do anything in this iteration of, of NBA basketball. Not a damn thing. Right. And and I think it, this is while we're. Sp- specifically focusing on the Bulls right now, that these points apply to any team in the start right. of a rebuild. You have to evaluate top to bottom your roster and say, do these guys fit the vision that we are trying to play moving forward? The on-court vision, the locker room, like, do we trust these guys not to be idiots off the court? If not, we need to move them and get value while we can and really like start to move into the direction, the overall direction that we want. And regardless right. of, as you said, more like not every team is going to fire the coach, fire the general manager, whatever, when they start a rebuild, they might have the same guys in place and they're just going to say, all right, this group ran it, ran its course. You know, we saw this with the Clippers in the last mm-hmm. couple of years where it was like, all right, the Blake CP3 DeAndre thing, it just didn't work for whatever reason. And we got to break this thing up and now look at where they are, you know, in a couple of years mm-hmm. from where they started taking the sledgehammer to them. So... I think, TJ, you know, you, you were saying scouting 100%. Like, scouting in the draft needs to be, every team needs to be focused on that. Regardless of whether you're rebuilding, like, just every single, all 30 teams should be focused Everyone. on it. The Warriors could have yeah. used a better draft instead of Jordan Bell. Just imagine if they got a cheap player that was a wing <laughs> who could actually help them. Like, those are really important things for contending yeah. teams. Yeah. And then we mentioned ownership. I really do think both the willingness to pay the tax is crucial but also having a long-term plan, hiring the right guys, delegating responsibilities to them, not intervening, because I think that's another place where the Knicks fall short. Mm-hmm. You know, you just hear about, like, Shadow Dolan, like, hanging over all these decisions. You just have to, like, empower your, you hire these guys and empower them. Empower them and trust them to make these decisions. They'll bring them to you. They're going to have to convince you to sign off on them. But, you know, don't get involved. Don't meddle. The more you meddle... You don't know more than these basketball lifers. Yeah, trust like, basketball right. people to make basketball decisions. Like, it seems so simple, but so few owners are willing to do it. Yeah. But at the same time, don't get too loyal because Garpack should not have gotten a 17-year tenure. Right. But there's levels to this, too. Like, there's also, like, you know, three years is way too short, but, like, no one should yeah. be given a 17-year right. runway to be functional. Like, th- that's right. just exactly. still so beyond my understanding with that organization. Right. Yeah. No, but you make a good point. Like, you shouldn't panic after three years. Like, if you give them seven or eight years and things just look just as bleak as when you started, like, fair enough. Like, you can make a change. I think that's that's reasonable. That's almost a decade to prove something. Like, you can, you can, you can look at that and go, well, I have enough data. Something we haven't discussed yet, which I think is really important, and that ties a little bit into the Sixers and Sam Hinkie, like the Sam Hinkie special, and in terms of just using money wisely. Yeah. Because one thing is, like, even if you get a couple superstars in there, and even if you build around one guy like you alluded to, TJ, but if you have, like, the, the top core in place and you need to add pieces from the outside before those contracts need to be extended, make sure you spend it on the right guy. Make sure you don't go out if you have cap space and you're a team and you sign, oh, I don't know, Al Horford to a team that has Joel Embiid at center. That would be, like, that's yeah. just a... <laughs> That's just an example. And don't spend money to spend money. There was no reason to trade for Tobias Harris. Not a single need reason. It was not necessary. 
Like yeah. the idea that you guys go get Jay Crowder for like eighty percent less and he'll do seventy percent right. of the job. Like it's a, it's it's incredibly terrible right. financial investments. It really is. Yeah, yeah, and I I think spending money wisely go ties into what we were talking about with the Nuggets earlier, where these financial windows are not forever. Like teams have to nail these decisions. You get your stars in place, great. You continue to draft well, great. If you continue to draft well, the players that you have after they come off their rookie contracts are all going to get significant raises. And you're going to have to start making tough decisions about who to keep, who to trade, who to just let walk as free agents. Like you don't have, I mean, the NBA salary cap and luxury tax, it's a very effective system. It was well designed yep. and it, you know, out, outside of 2016, where we had the one-time unprecedented spike, like it forces teams to either just spend out the ass in luxury tax, which most teams are not willing to do, or they're going to have to let good players go yeah. and get rid of them. The best example of this, and Mort kind of pointed out, the Nuggets made three draft picks when they drafted Jamal Murray. It was Jamal Murray, yeah. Malik Beasley, Wancho, Hernan Gomez. The biggest reason Malik Beasley and Wancho are not in Denver was that they were drafted the same year as Jamal. That is the only yeah. reason that they're not in Denver right now. If it was any other circumstance, they would probably still be in Denver. And they didn't plan on taking three players. They were amazed that Malik Beasley fell to them at that point, and they felt obligated to take the pick. So, like, they went mm-hmm. into that knowing that they weren't going to be able to take three players because of the money. So teams have to be thinking that way, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, Which is why Boston is probably going to trade one of their three have to. first round. They're going to have yeah. to. Yeah. yeah, Especially if Gordon Hayward ends up re-upping with them, too. Yeah. yeah. So so uh, I don't, did, did, I, did I get a chance to bring up Detroit? No, nah, we haven't even talked Detroit yet. No, because that's a team that I just I, I wrote about them yesterday for Forbes. I think that's a team that you should all also look at over the next couple of years. Like they are going to have a clean cap sheet. They have a, a somewhat functional young core. They don't have a star. They don't have this one guy you can build around. But they should have a top five pick. Like they they have all their opportunities to go at this rebuilding project from different avenues. They can go the Hinky special route. Like they can go sign under uh, the radar young players. They can go out and take on bad contracts. They can get creative with their salary cap structure. So, yeah, I mean, lots of uh, flexibility there as well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to see what they do. Are there any other big lessons that either you guys want to hit on in terms of what teams should or should not do? One last thing. If if Jamal Murray does not become the player he is, all of this talk about the Nuggets having the best rebuild in the past two decades goes away. It's that easily falls apart. That's what people need to realize, too, is that, yes, it's a long process to get to this point, and you make one wrong decision, and it just collapses in your hands. Yeah, I like, wonder if they should have let him go to restrict. I will always. Well, I don't think it should have gone that far. I know for a fact the Nuggets were terrified of the Gordon Hayward situation in Utah. Terrified of it. Yeah, that was yeah. a big part. And I was told they knew he wasn't going to be a max player this year and probably not next year. They are investing in understanding that he is a workaholic who will get better. So they weren't making this mm-hmm. bet for now. They were making it for two years from now. Did they have a sit down with the owner? The way they made him pledge that he's going to get better, like Andrew Wiggins. Yeah. It's like a, like a form contract that he signs yeah, yeah. and dates, and like a notary get, stamps. And no, no, the Nuggets don't. I will do get that at shit. least ten percent better every year. I promise. 
<laughs> you will see my points per game go up by 0.2% every four games. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah, no. The no. Nuggets don't do stuff like that. Tim Connolly is the beautiful mind type who might have a whiteboard with a lot of beautiful organization. And then an idea pops into his head and he's just like rapidly erasing and scribbling stuff that you can't read. <laughs> and it looks like hieroglyphics. So like, no, they don't operate like that. They're very much That's so good. different than that. Yeah, but to your point, I mean, like, we talked about Fultz and Tobias Harris. Like, those were two decisions Mm -hmm. where, you know, the Sixers, and I would even throw in Jaleel Okafor there, too. Like, those are three things where that just changed, each single decision changed the trajectory of their rebuild, and each mistake is proving incredibly costly right now. Yeah, and what happened to the Nuggets trade Gary Harris for Kevin Love, Paul Millsap never comes to Denver, it all stops. It's the yeah. same decision, yep. and they just happen to make the alternate one. It's that yeah. close every time. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't try to be an NBA GM. It's hard, man. People <laughs> don't realize how hard that is. Ooh, what a yeah. job. Yeah. So one final note. You know, some some listeners are probably going to sit here and say, "Well, what kind of rebuilding process is the right one?" And I think there's a pretty clear answer to that. If you're if you win a championship. You've done it the right way. Yes, thank you for that. I was going to say there's not one right answer. Only right answer is getting to where you need to be. However you yeah. get there. It does, it's like playing Survivor. Whatever yeah. you can do to get to that last point so you have a chance. That's all that you can control. Yeah. Do everything in your power to get there. I will say this much, though. I don't think a championship necessarily i don't think every successful rebuilding process will end in a championship. Of course not. Like a championship should not right. determine whether a rebuild was successful. But, yeah, if you win a title, then who gives a damn? You well, the Clippers with like, the most bizarre rebuild ever of just, like, we're going to sign all these guys around Blake Griffin. That worked. Yeah. Whether or not people yeah. want to, like, talk about how stale it got or how much of an asshole Chris Paul, I don't care. It worked. <laughs> they were there. Yeah. And they were as close as anybody can get. And I think now we can say the Nuggets worked. I think we can also say the 76ers worked. They won 50-plus yeah. games. This was the goal was to be there. And they got there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so did the Rockets work? The Rockets yeah. did work, and then their yeah. ownership changed. <laughs> That's really as simple as it is. Can you tell that to Rocket, Rockets fans, though? Can you? We we really have to just drive that point home to Rockets fans because they are almost suicidal at not winning that damn. Yeah, well, the Rockets fans hate me enough as it is. Just be happy with a transcendental <laughs> offensive player, and please stop yelling in my mentions for just five minutes, please. That's all I ask for. <laughs> well, on that note. I'm going to ask you, TJ, to plug your Twitter account one more time so you can let Rockets fans know where to hit you up. Rockets fans, if you want to come hate me, you can find me at TJ McBride NBA on Twitter. I am tweeting too much as usual. And then again, subscribe to the Rocky Mountain Hoops podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Go to MileHighSports.com and read about college and all kinds of other Colorado sports, I guess. Good stuff. Well, thanks as always, TJ, for coming on. This was a lot of fun. Uh, Thank you all to listening as always. Hope you're staying safe out there. Please follow us on Twitter at the NBA pod. You can find our Twitter handles and our bios to give us a follow as well. You can also find us on iTunes and wherever else podcasts are found on iTunes. Please subscribe, download, leave some five-star reviews, and we are being hosted on Spreaker. So check them out on Twitter at Spreaker. Until next time, I'm Brian Taporic, and I was joined, as always, by Morton Jensen and our special guest, TJ McBride. Have a good weekend, guys. You too, Brian. And you know what, guys? My all-time team was still better. (laughs) Wrong. (laughs) Wrong. Keep telling yourself that, Morton. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I will.
Okay guys, are you looking to go longer and maybe last a few extra rounds? Get to BlueChew.com. BlueChew.com has the first ever chewable that brings your performance in the bedroom to another level. They've got the same active ingredients that are in Viagra and Cialis so you know that they work. And they're chewable so they work faster. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. Plus, you don't need to go to the doctor's office or spend time waiting in the pharmacy line. Blue Chew's online physician is free of cost, and once approved, your order ships straight to your door in discreet packaging. Here is a great deal for all of you guys. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order free when you use promo code BLUEWIRE. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com, promo code BLUEWIRE. Thank you to everybody again for supporting the Rocky Mountain Hoops podcast and the Blue Wire podcast network. Make sure you go check out Bet Online. Make sure you go check out Blue Chew. Make sure you go check out MileHighSports.com for all Colorado sports. Go subscribe to the NBA pod on whatever, on whatever podcast listening platform that you use. Those guys are great, and I cannot thank them enough for allowing me to come have this conversation with them. Go follow Brian Toporek on Twitter and Morton Stick Jensen. And again, thank you guys so much for sticking around. I know it's been a crazy time, but I really couldn't get through all of this without all of you guys and being able to talk about basketball in this way. So stick together, stay safe, stay inside. Don't always listen to your local governments. Please try and practice precautions and keep everybody around you and everybody that is not part of your immediate family safe by staying inside or wearing a mask when you do go outside. I am TJ McBride from MileHighSports.com. This has been the Rocky Mountain Hoops podcast, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we will talk to you guys later. During these extremely turbulent times throughout this global pandemic that has really brought the world to a halt, one of the you know leading essential businesses in the Denver metro area has been medical and recreational recreational cannabis. So if you're looking to find some weed or some kind of THC property to be able to help you throughout these times, go reach out to Terrapin Care Station. That's T-E-R-R-A-I-P-N. They are so good at what they do. They are safe. They are discreet. They have edibles. They have flowers. They have concentrates. They have tinctures. They have all kinds of medicinal abilities to use marijuana to get the most out of it for what you are looking for. And they have been the longest standing supporter of this Rocky Mountain Hoops podcast. So make sure you go show some love to Terrapin Care Station and go on out there and go patron their business if you're going to go out and look for some marijuana in these times. They are great at what they do and we cannot thank them enough here at Mile High Sports and at the Rocky Mountain Hoops podcast.